The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. I'm going to start today with a very different image than the movie I'm going to be preaching about and inspired by today. The image is this. I wonder if any of you recognize that. That is from 1982's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. This image really freaked me out when I first saw it. You see, just to condense the plot a little bit, Khan, the villain, has overtaken a planet and they, I don't know what they transport them, they beam them down to the planet. I think that's Chekhov. And the two members of the Enterprise who are on this planet are taken captive. And they're held and they take off their helmets, Khan does. And into each of those helmets, they place these little wormy, parasite, scary looking things. And I I didn't show you the picture in which they crawl into their ears. I spared you that. See, but here's actually what's kind of the, the worst thing about this, which is that they're not killed by these wormy parasite things. They take over their lives. It's a form of mind control. Their perceptions and actions are warped. I'm going to ask that you keep that image in mind today. Today's Spirit Flicks message is inspired by 12 Years a Slave, a movie so powerful that the word powerful for me is a miscategorization. It is the 150-year-old true story of Solomon Northup, who in the 1840s was living with his family as a freed black man in upstate New York, was tricked and captured and kidnapped and sold into slavery in the South for, yes, a dozen years. It is an important story. It is an American story. It is a story that asks us, especially those of us who are white, to look at the reality of what part of this country has been, to look at the reality of black pain, and black grief, and black lives. And to look, and to keep on looking, and to keep seeing. The question arises, though, do we see enough? Do we accept enough? All of us, but especially those of us who have white skin. There's a whole bunch of studies of what's called the racial empathy gap recently. That's just a fancy sociological way for saying racism, the racial empathy gap. There was an article in Slate magazine, the online magazine, called simply, I don't feel your pain. And it's a study of a whole bunch of studies on this racial empathy gap. And one of the studies they start out with is this that a whole bunch of white folks were shown pictures of white people and black people, folks of actually a variety of different races, receiving the same exact painful stimulus. In some cases, it was a, um, uh, a skin prick with a, with a needle, something that causes distress. The white folks in the study registered much higher levels across the board for the pain that white people were feeling versus the pain that the black people were feeling. Further studies actually went on to prove something else, which is that actually 
Black folks in the study had the same exact response. They diminished the pain of black people and elevated their empathy of the pain of white folks. Further study revealed this as the author of this article, I do not feel your pain wrote. We have this assumption that because black people have been hardened by certain life experiences that they can deal with more pain or they feel it less intensely and therefore they're forced to endure even more. This goes by another word more direct. It's called dehumanization. When we do not look upon the pain of our fellow human beings as if they were fully human. One more study. And by the way, there's a whole bunch of these you can take a look at. This is from Portland State University and University of Arizona. And it involves something we do all the time. Some of us several times a day, which is simply crossing the street. Turns out it's not the same for all of us. In this study, it was revealed that twice as many drivers in Portland, Oregon. I mean, a progressive city, right? In Portland, Oregon, twice as many drivers failed to yield to black pedestrians as they did white pedestrians. And white pedestrians did not have to wait nearly as long for cars to yield to them when they had an opportunity with the light to cross the street. Not coincidentally, black pedestrians are killed in pedestrian fatalities much more often than other races. So this is just some current research. But in fact, the same story has been told for a long time for those of us who would wish to listen. One of the most famous works of American literature in the 20th century is simply called Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And that's what it is about. A man who is invisible, a black man who is invisible to the lives of other people around him, his being seen but misperceived over and over again and these stories which by the way i have to say are so much older than the freaking help the book and the movie that i know got all this notice but these stories are so much older and been around for hundreds of years the stories of black domestic workers nannies cooks housekeepers who said over and over again, we know exactly what goes on in the white neighborhoods. We know exactly what goes on in those houses. Sometimes our lives, not just our livelihoods, depend upon it. But the people who live in those houses, the white-skinned folks, don't know what goes on in our houses. Invisibility. Lives not being known in return. This is why 12 years a slave is so important. Not in the abstract, but in the real. In the tears, in the loss, in the sorrow, black lives in this movie are at the center. And it is not a Hollywoodized story for those of you who have seen it. If this would have been a true Hollywood production, and yes, I know it won Best Picture, but actually didn't earn all that much money. If this would have been a traditional Hollywood picture, Brad Pitt, who plays a small, very important, but a small role, this movie would have been extended out and we would have seen a lot less Solomon Northup and we would have seen a lot more Brad Pitt. It would have been about Brad Pitt's coming to realize the horrors of slavery and the beginnings of his conscience. We see the fruits of that, but it's not his story. Folks, some of you know this if you've seen the movie. This is not Driving Miss Daisy. This is not Mississippi burning. This is not the help. This is not gone with the wind. This is not a movie 
that exists to make white folks feel comfortable with the history of America. This is Solomon Northup's story and his fellow slave story, and it is brutal. One reviewer in um, using probably the closest analog they could as a form of comparison said it makes the TV miniseries Roots, which for its time was revolutionary, not denying that. But this movie makes Roots look like the Care Bears. It's true. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you have seen 12 Years a Slave. You know the answer. There's no public shaming here. For those of you who struggle with trauma or are victims of violence, who have sensitive triggers because of your life experience, I would encourage you, if you haven't seen the movie, be cautious. But for those of us, those of you who haven't seen the movie, who are saying maybe I'll get to it eventually, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. Race and racism, I I know it already. I want to challenge you in love to see this movie as soon as you can. Privilege is many things. And it comes in many forms, skin color, gender, sexual orientation, race, all kinds of different ways. But privilege is at base about this. It is refusing to see what we do not have to see in the pain of other people because it's a choice. We can just turn away. That's what privilege is. Twelve Years a Slave asks us to pay attention because of our long history, our American history of white supremacy. Now, maybe you hear this word, these words, white supremacy, and you think, okay, KKK, Nazis. Well, yes, but it's too easy to say them, the haters, the hateful, the violent people. White supremacy is simply this, and it's part of our American history, which is that white skin lives matter more than black lives or lives of color. I want to challenge you in love, with love, to spend some time, if you have not read it, to read a mammoth important article, the most important thing I have read this year so far, Ta-Nehisi Coates's The Case for Reparations in Atlantic Magazine. It won't cost you anything other than your time and maybe some sleepless hours. It's right there on the Atlantic Magazine's website. He lays out a story, a story of 250 years of slavery and then the failure, which is really a failure of will and commitment, the failure of Reconstruction and Jim Crow and our American apartheid system and blacks who were terrorized and kept from the vote and not allowed to own property and were kept in forms of slavery in anything but name. And then excessive policing and the war on drugs right here to this day. So, yeah, make up your own minds about what the American government ought or ought not to do with reparations. But the case is there for us to see in America. And it's not incidental to what America is and who we are. That the mistreatment, the devaluation of black lives is at the center of our story. 
This has disenfranchised black people, African-Americans in all kinds of ways, not the least of which in terms of wealth that couldn't be handed on from generation to generation to generation. All that social and human capital that was never put together and shared parent to children or within community. And it exists up to this day. Up to this day and the still ongoing and troubling news out of Ferguson and the killing of Michael Brown. Of course, my friends, there is so much we do not know. And yes, there is misinformation out there. And this is what we do know. That yet another unarmed black child. He was 18. Let's not forget this. Now, you can go to some websites and, you know, what they call him is thug, which is just a more slightly socially permissible way of saying the N-word. And let's say, you know, he wasn't respectful. Let's say he was absolutely, maybe we'll find out, involved in that nonviolent crime of stealing those cigars. Here's the question, though, that some folks are asking. I think we need to ask as well, too. How virtuous did Michael Brown need to be to actually to continue to exist in this life? Did what he did justify taking his life? That's a question we have to sit with. And for those of us who remember the history, we might remember a name like Emmett Till, who was tortured and strung up for the crime of being disrespectful seemingly to a white woman, whistling at her, it is said. Although it's actually probably not true that he did that. Who in our culture gets the benefit of the doubt? Who in our culture gets the benefit of empathy? I'm going to share with you some things here about me that I'm not proud of. But it goes to show something. Three times in my terribly entitled teen years, I got in a little bit of trouble with the cops. One for public urination. While I was drinking, so you can add that in as well, too. One for jumping up and down on the hood of a car. One for skipping when you used to put the little tokens in the toll in the New York City public subway. All three times I got a little stern talking to. Not that stern. Don't do it again. And sent on my way. No handcuffs. No precinct. Who gets not just the benefit of the doubt in the society, but who gets the benefit of belonging? Who gets the benefit of full humanity? We see it in popular culture all the time, my friends. I'll take just one example. Some of you might remember uh, the actor. He's now more well-known as an actor than a a musician, than a rapper. Ice-T. He put out about 20 years ago this miserable, horrible, violent, vile song called Cop Killer. And he was universally denounced as he should have been. But just two weeks ago, I was shopping and in a store, the Rolling Stones, and I love the Rolling Stones. We do a Rolling Stone song here. The Rolling Stones, black sugar came, brown sugar. Actually, that's what they meant by it. Brown sugar came on. And that's played all the time. I was taught it in my very, very brief and totally unsuccessful guitar player career at 14. It's one of the first songs my guitar teacher taught me was brown sugar. Read the lyrics to Brown Sugar. 
It is not about, quote unquote, as the apologists like to say it, the taboo of interracial sex, which itself is a racist thing, a racist thing to call that taboo, even in 1970. No. Read the lyrics. It is about the beating and rape of black women by their white masters. If you've seen the movie, you know what happens to Patsy. I don't think any of us can ever listen to brown sugar again and not hear the dehumanization, dehumanization at the center of that tale. It makes me ill. Who counts, who doesn't, who gets the benefits of the doubt, the benefit of the empathy? That's not a long ago and far away question. It's a question for right here and for right now. Brad Pitt's character in this movie does say at one point, and he does Solomon Northup, a beautiful act, a act, by the way, that Solomon Northup gives him back what he should have had all along, which is his freedom. Brad Pitt's character says there is an ill, a fearful ill resting upon this nation, and there will be a day of reckoning yet. I don't believe we have fully reckoned yet with our history. Yes, there has been progress, especially in the last 50 years. But to quote from one of my other favorite movies, Magnolia, that came out a while ago, as many of the characters say all throughout this fanciful movie. We may think we're through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. We may think we're through with the past, but the past isn't through with us. And this is bigger than individuals. Yes, people of all skin colors are capable of cruelty, of malice, just as much as all of us are capable of kindness. But what we're talking about is what's woven in right at the center of American culture. And that's why I think of that Star Trek image. That's the question I want to know about this police officer who killed Michael Brown. He's swimming in this culture all in all the same ways the rest of us are. And yes, I know policing is an incredibly difficult profession. I had a Facebook conversation. I was surprised how civil it was with a friend of mine on Facebook who is a police officer. I mean, I helped to bury his wife. He's a decent guy. And he saw something I posted about the militarization of the police, and he started to complain that we get blamed for everything and always second guess. And I said, I have no idea how difficult your job is. And then he went on to say all the ways in which their lives as police officers are misrepresented to the larger public. And I said, what's interesting about that is how often if we listen, we hear the same exact thing from people who live, especially in communities of color, especially in marginalized communities about how they are demonized and misrepresented and their lives are not shown. And to me, this is why this is a question of systems, not just individuals, because in a sick system, we all suffer. We don't all suffer the same, but we all suffer and we do not flourish together. This is why this is an American issue. If we face it, if we accept it, if we understand that this is part of who we are, we will keep on paying attention and not just turn the page, the web page, the actual page until Ferguson goes away. 
will keep on paying attention and will recognize that it's not just a matter of politics and law and crime and punishment, although it's about those things even more. It's a question about our spirituality. All this stuff I go on and on about up here and Lee has talked about, about spiritual practice and spiritual practice being the heart of our Unitarian Universalist tradition, the cultivation of our spiritual character. You know what all that is about? Freedom. It's not just about getting to the mountaintop experience and getting above our lives and experiencing peace and serenity. Yes, it's about those things, but it is about unconditioning ourselves from fear. It is about unconditioning ourselves from shame. It is about unconditioning ourselves from making snap judgment about other people's lives simply because we've been told it and simply because we're swimming in this culture and we're a part of it. It is moving away from the mindless conditioned ways, especially when we're conditioned by our fear. People who without spaciousness, without love, simply react to their fear. This is the root of so many social evils because people who are afraid will allow horrible things to be done in their name. People who are afraid will allow themselves to be silent when they know they should speak. I got to tell you, I was a little bit afraid about sharing some of these words with you today. But love has to be bigger than fear for all of us. And I know that not all of us are activists. Not all of you are activists. I'm not much of a march in the street kind of person. It doesn't fit me all that well. But you know what? There's still work for us to do simply as citizens and even more than that, simply as human beings. We can take a look with a suspicious and critical eye on a movement that is going on in this country right now, which is a determined movement to strip the voting rights of many people. Many of them poor, many of them black, many people of color. And to recognize it has been going on for hundreds of years in America. This is not a new thing. Read the words from the nonpartisan Brennan Center at NYU that says actually vote fraud is incredibly rare. Don't believe the scandalously edited video that some know-nothing 20-something posted on this journalism site that's really an opinion site masquerading as journalism. Be suspicious. Recognize that there's a long tradition here of trying to hold other folks down in this country. Question the logic. And by the way, the logic is aimed very often right at those of us who are stakeholders in this society. Middle class folks, upper middle class folks, rich folks, white folks. Question the logic about fear of the war of drugs and mass incarceration, what Michelle Alexander rightly calls the new Jim Crow. Question it, how often that falls upon the backs and the lives of the poor and the black. Pay attention to a recent study out of the New York City Department of Corrections that fully half of the teens, the teenagers in their system, Half of them come into the system already showing signs of traumatic brain injury. This is not an argument for saying, oh, the poor kids, let them go and give them a cookie. This is not being soft on crime. This is asking questions about our society that recognizes the deep trauma and deep loss that is already here. And the lock them up and throw away the key breaks bodies, breaks families, breaks lives, breaks communities. And it is not justice. We can pay attention, as my Facebook friend, Kenny Wiley, an African-American and a UU religious professional and a classmate at Harvard Divinity School, 
with Lee Pegzoa, our intern. Kenny Wiley says, yeah, we're not all supposed to be activists, but we can take a look at the places where the things that rest on our hearts intersect with this racist history in America and white supremacy. I look at two things here at Wellsprings. I look at our commitment to Chester County Futures. I want to thank those of you who have gotten involved. And so many of those kids, not all of them, but so many of those kids are from communities of color. All of them live disenfranchised lives at a certain level. What can we do to extend our commitment to Chester County Futures as a community? And not just that on an individual basis, but say, why are there so many kids who need Chester County Futures in the first place? For those of us, and you know this is my story if you've been around before, for whom addictions and recovery rest right at the center of who we are, we can say no longer it's not just about my individual recovery or the few people I might work with or I might sponsor. We might ask the question, why are there so many addicted people in this country? Why is there so much human brokenness? And why, for God, why? Do we answer what is a mental health crisis and a spiritual health crisis through the lens of punishment and crime and punitive measures? It's so easy to be driven by our fear. It's so easy to look away. But to have a mature love of country, and I do love this country, is to accept it all. The promise and the hurt, the great rights, and the awful rights denied. To keep doing this until our sight is restored to its true nature, which is the quality of compassion, and our hands take on the work of healing and justice. To build the dream that Dr. King spoke of, and we just sang of, his life. A love-first culture, not a fear-first culture. I want to close with this. Some of you might know that recently I added, can't really see the other ones, but you can see these, added two new tattoos to my body. Chesed, the Jewish word, the Hebraic word for the indwelling loving kindness of God that is eternal and is always a promise for us. Chesed. Meta. The Pali word for loving kindness, one of the four limitless qualities. Two traditions, one with the tradition and teachings of a personal God, one without a personal God. I didn't put these on my body because my body is a world religions course. I put these on my body after thinking about it for a very long time. Because I am a universalist. That whatever we might or might not choose to call God, the most animating, the most powerful force in this universe is love. And so when I woke up every day, I wanted the first thing to, that I would see to be loving kindness and to make that my intention. Because I am a universalist. And if I do not give my life to love, then what am I doing here? The point, by the way, is not that you should go out and get tattoos. Although, if you want to, I've got a really good anchor to tell you about. And by the way, I don't ever want to hear from one of your kids. Well, you know, Reverend Ken said getting a tattoo is important for my spiritual growth and development. I'm not saying that. 
but to keep loving kindness close to our hearts. To ask this day in light of Ferguson, Michael Brown, and all the challenges of this society, what does loving kindness ask of us? What does loving kindness ask of you and of me? And to be love first people. Not fear first people, not punishment first people, but to be a love first people. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, out of the realms of limitless eternity, of timelessness beyond measure or scope, or even a meaning we can make sense of, we are born into time. We are born into conditions we did not choose. We are born into conditions that we would wish to change. We are born into conditions of sometimes terrible suffering and also at the same time remarkable promise. Being born into time, into culture, into this country as we are. May we recognize with eyes that can see clearly and hearts that can love deeply. That our hands matter. That we can do the work of the balming and the binding up and the healing of our wounds. And yes, it will go on for a very long time, but it can't go on without us. May we be among the healers, the compassion givers, the justice makers, and the lovers. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.